to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I am really excited today. Oh. I am pumped. Yes. yes. Because you can guess why. We have a very special guest with us today. Yeah. Do, are and, you, and like, sporting wood already or something, or what? I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> right. Well, who's our special guest? Well, we have with us Steve Wimette today. Yes. Session hey guys. tour player and everything else in between. Well, he has a very illustrious career, actually. So <laughs> yes, he does. I think, but what, I, what I think we'll do, Steve, if you don't mind, first, welcome yeah. to, to the podcast. We Thank very you. much look forward to this. To people who don't know who you are, perhaps yes. we can start by you explaining a little bit of your background and what you do today. Yeah, I guess I got my start. I've been doing this my whole life, but my start in the in the world of the public eye, I believe, would have been with Guitar Hero back in 2007. It was actually my first gig after getting laid off from AOL. <laughs> Remember Wait, those what? guys? <laughs> I did not know you worked for AOL. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a long story. I'll get into that. I got laid off from AOL. Of course, there is no AOL to get laid off from anymore, but uh, so joke's kind of on them. You were ahead of the curve, really. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, I, you know, I realized that I'd been doing music my whole life. I mean, I got my degree in classical performance and composition, and uh, I was going to be a rock star like a lot of the guys uh, were expecting we were going to be, and it didn't work out exactly that way. And then after I went through the whole tech business side of things, when I was working with game composers, as well as a lot of back-end stuff you don't need to hear about, I uh, I ended up looking for, you know, I wanted to write music for video games. And I went to a uh, a conference, which is called the Game Developers Conference. Uh, GDC. No, GDC. Been there. And uh, I'm so old, it used to be called the Computer Game Developers Conference before it turned into GDC. So, uh-huh. yeah. CD. And a friend of mine introduced me to this guy named Kai Huang, who was uh, running Red Octane and Guitar Hero. And that's how I got my first gig. I ended up writing, I don't know, maybe I did three or, wait a minute, probably about 10 re-records for Guitar Hero 3 and then some custom tracks and it all goes on from there. So that's the longest intro of a How Did I Get Here ever. For your podcast, not at all. That was that's great, <laughs> but I think you you skipped something there. I think I'm sure I did. Yeah, not not necessarily when it comes to the guitar hero, but unless he's lying to me, uh, Jody informed me that you were also part of T Ride and did some yeah. work for that record. Yeah, yeah, that was the I was going to be a rock star. So so he didn't really skip I, it; he just glossed over it. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I'll re- I'll uh, I'll rewind. So I met Eric Valentine back in 1988 when I had kind of joined a studio-ish band with a great singer named Dave Candelaria. And Dave brought me into the studio where where there was this young guy. I mean, basically, we were the same age, but he was this amazing engineer already, and he was recording our demos. And that was Eric. And Mm. what happened was throughout the course of the next few years recording with Dave at Eric's studio... You know, I'd been playing guitar. That was what I was doing, obviously. And there was this band that they were creating called T-Ride. And they said, hey, we've got this opening for a track called Rock and Roll Zombies from Hell. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of crazy uh, arpeggiated intro that we haven't been able to get 
the way that we want it to sound. And I guess they had kind of had sort of like had an open audition for anyone who could play this thing that Eric (laughs) wrote on, (laughs) or actually Dan wrote on his Casio keyboard that, uh, you know, they'd buy him like a free jack-in-the-box and and a few hours of studio time. So I said, I'll give it a shot. And so I came in the next Monday and recorded that lick, which is sort of pseudo-famous because... uh, It is crazy as hell. It's, it was a really interesting, and I have to say that Eric was really cool about it because I didn't quite have it, but he worked with me, and that's one of Eric's skills back then was he was very much a cheerleader for you, and so he helped me get through that lick, and then he actually recorded his drum fill over the top of my lick, which was, you know, that's how good he is. But yeah, so I was in the band for about a year and a half, more on the studio side, and then when it came down to touring... Jeff Tyson was actually in the band before me, and he was he was really the right guy to tour. I was much more of a, can we just like go home after this? Like I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to get in a station wagon and, and ride around the country. So, um, hence so, the reason why so. I did not meet you at the yes. Salt Lake gig. That's right, you did not because you met Jeff. And, That's right. Uh, Jeff, uh, you know, I still stay in touch with actually all the guys. And Jeff is a, you know, as we all know, phenomenal player, Satriani student. Yes. And he's got these spider fingers that uh, he'll dent frets with that left hand. He's just such a great player. But that that was, uh, yes, that was my illustrious beginning into the career. And after the T-Ride thing sort of ended, I went into the tech business because... I actually wanted to make some money. There you go. I, I got to yeah. interject real quick, though, because the yeah. three of us are all like super guitar nerds. And I will have to say that Jeff yeah. also is a super guitar nerd, at least the night I met him on tour. Oh, yeah, of course he is. Yeah. He's also um, amazingly skilled at being able to just plug into a pedal and sound just like Jeff. I'm completely, <laughs> I, I'm at the whim of whatever gear I'm playing and, and I will play horrible if it's not set up just perfect for me. So Uh-oh. never ask me to get up and jam because I will just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't jam. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's an interesting point that you kind of bring up there, though, with because I'm with you on that when it comes to your sound. Like it, it yeah. needs to, it needs to yeah. feel good. It's that comfort factor, right? And yeah. you go like, well, yeah, can you plug into you know whatever backline? Yeah, you you probably can, but you're probably not going to play your best because you're kind of no. holding back because it feels weird. Well, yeah, you're you're not even holding back. It's like it's holding you back. You just yeah, it's it's incredibly hard. To play, I mean, I can do like maybe I can do Malcolm Young, uh, maybe, and, and I'm, and that's not saying Malcolm isn't like the most amazing rhythm guitar player ever. It's just that if I try to do any anything pyrotechnic wise, forget it. You know, there's just yeah. it's yeah, I'm totally at the whim. So, you had obviously some studio experience and oh, yeah. describing your personality here. It sounds like doing what you do now almost sounds to me like it, it fits you like a glove because you, you get to do that and you get to explore sound and you get to yeah. just really do that on a super microscopic level, if you will, doing what you do for the Guitar Hero games, right? Yeah. I mean, really what it was is that after the T-Ride, I had a home studio before, you know, four track and then an eight track. And uh, and then I went through the whole ADAT Mackie thing. And, <laughs> and then I bought it. Yeah. Yeah. It was horrible. It sounded great for the first track and then it just fell apart after that. And then Pro Tools wasn't quite there. So I had a studio all the way through. And when I lived in Seattle and I was working on campus at Microsoft, you know, I was recording guys 
and I realized quickly that I didn't enjoy recording other musicians at all. Um, but yeah, I had I had this whole basement studio set up, and it was terrible. It was always cold, and I had to get out of there. Yeah, so I had been recording for you know many many years before Guitar Hero, and just before Guitar Hero, I had done this tribute band with some amazing players. So I had Troy Lucetta was my neighbor. The drummer from Tesla oh, nice. was my neighbor here in Scottsdale. Yes. And then I met Dave Henserling, who was actually known before as David Michael Phillips as the guitar player for King Cobra. Mm. Uh, yep. But he's like an, a walking encyclopedia of any musical part. So he actually ended up playing bass in this band. And then Robert Mason, who sings for Warrant now and had sung for Lynch Mob and some other bands, we all became really good friends and we put together this band, which was a very accurate version of a band that never existed. <laughs> so we looked like we were from the 70s, we had the gear from the 70s, but we played cover songs in a, hey, Cobo Hall burned down and we had to bring all of our gear to this little place. So we would have, on any given night, we would have 12 cabinets, four 12 cabinets, and 12 <laughs> heads. So it's four orange 412s, eight Marshall, eight 412s, and then matching heads for each cabinet. And so it was hilarious. And That's so that awesome. really, yeah. And so, you know, we were doing this thing to be as accurate as possible. And I think that prepped me for Guitar Hero because when I talked to the guys at Guitar Hero, I thought they were looking for note trackers. Right. And I thought, great, yeah, I, I totally could do note tracking because I'm into transcribing and whatnot. And they said, hey, we're in need of covers because our supplier isn't able to get them fast enough for the game. So I auditioned with Schools Out, which ended up on the game. And um, that's when they they opened it up for me to do more songs. And that was like the gate opener of all gate open. I mean, to have that as your first gig coming into the business, it couldn't have been better. Right. I hear that. I mean, that. really? Guitar Hero 3? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, <laughs> any games you worked on? Yeah. This one. <laughs> that, uh, so, I, I wish that, I could say the same thing. No, I cannot say that I worked on Guitar Hero. But <laughs> some people have hey, heard the games I've been on. Yeah. Hey, you know, there's a lot of games people haven't heard of that I've, or, you know, I've played on a lot of games. So, yeah. Very cool. So, how has, if at all, how has that process sort of evolved over the years. Now, I mean, we're talking, yeah. you said 2007, right? Yeah. So it, it's yeah. been a minute. Um, yeah, it sure has. Is it basically the same process for you now, or is it much more nuanced, I would say, today I, as I it think, was then? You know, it's funny. You know how bands, sometimes their first album is their best album uh, yeah. because, they did, because they didn't know better or they just, they had it. I think there are certain songs that still were really, really inspired. I think I've done around 300 covers now. And wow. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was way in my wheelhouse. I mean, we're talking about Scorpions, Pat Benatar, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, that kind of, you know, the guitar hero stuff. And so it was right up my alley. And I had a really great team of people. So I had Ryan Green was mixing and producing locally here. And then Gary Sanchez was a drummer that was in a band called Metalhead with Robert Mason. And so he played all the drums on those covers, except for a few where a drummer named John Covington was playing, good friend of mine. But over time, it went away from rock, and the majority of my re-records uh, have been on Just Dance, which is mm. not rock. So, I mean, I'm doing everything from old school Harry Belafonte to 
actual recent pop dance hits. I I can't say the name of the two songs that I did for the new upcoming Just Dance, but I mean, I've done everything from Elton John to This Is the Rhythm of the Night, you know, if you remember that from back in the day <laughs> yeah. uh, with Jenny B. And I actually got Jenny B., the original singer, to sing on the cover. Nice. Uh, which was, that's a career highlight. So it's become much, much more nuanced because now it could be any song. You know, it could be it could be anything, and I've opened it up to being able to do any kind of music. So I don't really get to do rock as much as I used to unless it's a session because there hasn't been a guitar hero or a rock band or a rock revolution for, what, 10 years now, right? Yeah, it's, so, it, I mean, the uh, landscape has definitely shifted. And I yeah. remember, because uh, I was teaching at the time when the explosion, if you will, of Guitar Hero. Yeah. And... It was very interesting to, to sort of see that because I think one thing that happened was like people got the completely wrong idea of what it was to play guitar. Yeah, <laughs> because they, they, they came in and said, oh, I'm, re- I'm, re- I'm really good at guitar here. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's awesome. Yeah, but I can push this buttons is quite too. Different. Yeah. yeah, but it also did turn a lot of people onto the instrument. It I sure think. did. Or any instrument where it's like at that point, it was all of a sudden you see kids wanting to learn how to play Sweet Child of Mine again. Right. Right. I mean, it opened up an entire generation to an era of music that they may not have been exposed to. Yeah. So it was was absolutely instrumental, no pun intended, to the new movement. And you see the results of it on YouTube now with younger guys and girls playing extremely well, right? I mean, it's no joke. At a very young age. The guy that makes this guitar right here, who's made quite a few of my guitars, as you guys can see, that not the people on the podcast can see, he was hired to do special edition guitars for Guitar Hero. Really? And then something did not go right, (laughs) (laughs) which is unfortunate. But it was just an interesting connection to hear, like, you know, knowing you that you've done a lot of these tracks and then the guy that actually built a lot of my guitars, he was asked to build some special guitars for that situation. That's pretty amazing. I know that one point Fender was involved with Rock Band and was Gibson involved with Guitar Hero? I can't remember. I, I don't recall. There was a lot of things going on. I mean, they had they put out a lot of games. I did every Guitar Hero until the end. So I did all the way through Warriors of Rock. So that was the last one. And I got to live out a dream that Gene Simmons was the voiceover for the music that I wrote for the underscore. I didn't That's get to meet awesome. him. I know. I was like, you know, when they told me that he came into Neversoft and I'm like, ah, you know, that's when I wished I'd lived in LA, you know, because here I am in Arizona, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, and Gene Simmons is doing voiceover. And I kind of wish that I'd been there for that. That's a quick plane ride. Why didn't you go? I didn't, what they told me after the fact. Oh, those cheap bastards. I'm like, what are you, guys? (laughs) Well, come on, man. and, And knowing what I know about you and such is that you are a massive Kiss fan. Yes. So it and would I have should, been like I a should qualify that. that yes. I, I need to qualify that I'm a massive Kiss fan from 73 to 79. <laughs> okay. 78, to be fair. And, and the reunion. And I mean, when I say reunion, I mean the one that happened in 96, not the one that's still going on. Um, I mean, I love Kiss and everything, but my first Kiss concert was Dynasty, 1979. And so I had grown up, um, I'm still a kid at that point, but I had seen the gatefold of Alive 2, and that's what I was expecting when they came for Dynasty, and I was treated to half stacks and, and a white stage, and I was like, what happened? 
Yeah. It's not the same Kiss that, you know. Yeah, it, it was a lot. Yeah, <laughs> so it, again, I'm, I'm a huge Kiss fan as well. Yeah. I, my first all? concert was uh, Unmasked when they toured oh, in Europe. Okay. And it was a very similar stage setup. It yes. was that ramp around. Yeah. And, and at that point, I, I mean, I was also very young, but they couldn't have done anything wrong as far as I right. was concerned. But, but right. that's when color started coming into the, oh, the yeah. uniforms and all that kind of <laughs> the stuff. Kiss ca- and the kiss capades came to town. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just, yeah. Uh, yeah, when they all had their own, you know, Ace had purple or Ace had blue, Paul had purple, Peter had green and Gene had red. And it was like, hey guys, this feels a little Vegasy, you know? I mean, it they yeah. were dangerous and scary. And then all of a sudden they were super kiss. And it was like, oh... And yeah. then Van Halen came out and I saw them like three weeks after and it was like, uh-oh, I think I'm changing my mind here. You know? <laughs> it's a whole different thing. Anyways, yeah. I digress. Well, yes. yeah, we're all huge Kiss fans here. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so to, to steer this back a little bit on to yeah. sort of like perhaps the process here of yes. what you do. So now – Knowing what I know about you and your work, there is a ridiculous amount of detail going into reproducing one of these tracks. Yeah. Can you give us sort of like the short version of what that might look like? You get assumingly contracted to do, hey, we want tracks one through 10 or what have you. Yeah, right. Now, what what does that look like for you when you get that? Okay, well, let me use the brief from Ubisoft. So let's say Just Dance is happening. Uh, I've done the last 11 Just Dances, so it's every year it happens. So right around November or so, I'll get an email from my guy at Ubisoft, and he'll say, okay, the first track is going to be X, and they'll send me a brief. And the brief is, it's usually the same, which is we want it to be a beat matched, you know, tempo matched, mm-hmm. uh, note for note replica. And of course, we all know that that's near impossible. But the idea is, is that they're going to use the original one to choreograph to, and then they're going to put mine in. And usually it's because of, you know, for licensing, they have to go through, there's a lot of, there's a lot of details that I don't know about that they have to do to prepare for it so that they can say, yeah, go ahead and do that, Steve. So when I get it, I do a tempo map. And I use Studio One, so I will accurately map out to the beat, four beats for every bar. I'll uh, I'll do a tempo map. And then I start doing my research, which is so much easier now than it was for Guitar Hero because the internet has everything now. Right. And um, I'll find out what studio it was recorded at, who, who were the players, if it was a session, and I'll learn everything I can. Hey, what kind of mixing console? Who was the engineer? And I'll start going through. And these days, if you're lucky, you might be able to find an isolated track or two. And that can be really helpful because it gives you clues. You know, hey, that's the kind of reverb they're using. So I'll literally break it down into the chords, the rhythms, and then I'll start looking for the players. And usually it's, it's the end result is I just have to find the best singer that can qualify for it. So that ends up being the hardest part for me. The easiest part is tempo mapping and then kind of digging into the track. And I use different tools to uh, to isolate parts. I'll use RX from Isotope oh, or I'll use Transcribe. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's true. You know, you have to find as many ways as possible to isolate the instruments. Well, and, and what, Transcribe is... The one that you're probably referring to is Music Rebalance in Isotope. Music Rebalance? Yeah. Yes. That, and yeah. it does a really, that actually does a really pretty good job of taking things apart. 
It does. And that's actually re- relatively new. Most of the time I just get a stereo track and I would just listen as, as intently as possible. And I do have a partner that I've worked with for the last 10 years. His name's Cat Gray, amazing musician and a great friend. And he is a drummer, a bassist, a keyboardist, and everything, and a great singer. So when it came to doing like Earth, Wind, and Fire, he had actually played with the guys in Earth, Wind, and Fire. And so, <laughs> so he knew and, the parts. And, and knew, he knew, not only did he know the parts, he sounded like Maurice when he sang, he played the drums like the way they were played. So that, you know, and we have an amazing group of players all throughout the world that if I need something specific, I know who to get in touch with. But most of the time, I'll play. Some of the keys, all the guitars, the bass, and then, um, you know, whatever else happens. But it is a kind of a step-by-step process. And then you just keep going back and forth until it kind of gets to that point where you go, okay, I have everything. And mm. then th- then there's a whole other, you know, the mix it, stage. Sure. And in, in a perfect world, how long is that process? Uh, it depends on how much time they give me. I, I like to have a month if I can. But a okay. lot of times, I'll have more than one in process. So. Right. You know, if I have a month, I kind of bounce back and forth between the tracks. Sometimes I have more time. Are you saying a month per track or a month per brief? Per track. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, usually for Just Dance, I'll have anywhere between five and eight or 10 to do. So it'll get narrowed down. Sometimes they'll call and say, hey, look, we we really need this in the next two weeks. And then I have to scramble. Wow. I mean, it's it's a huge undertaking. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just is. getting into that, and I, I would assume that it would have taken you a fair bit of work to kind of establish your workflow and find what kind of works and, and how to kind of break it down. And Yeah, uh, I think that, yeah, it did. It took some time. I learned a lot during Guitar Hero. Then I learned a ton during Rock Revolution from Konami. That one didn't do very well, but I did 55 covers in six months for that game. Ooh, that's, that, that sounds was, like a heavy schedule by comparison to what you like to do now. <laughs> Yes, let's just say that uh, I I was doing it because when it was offered to me, I had 20 songs on the game and I had six months and then the other guy dropped out and I said, I'll take them like (laughs) a fool. I'll I'll take them, you know, so that didn't, uh, I will never do that again. I think I, I think I stayed in bed for a week after that was over. (laughs) Probably well deserved. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's probably true. (laughs) It generally tends to happen when you overwork yourself on any project. I know I can say close to the same thing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. for sure. Okay. So when it comes to now, obviously you say you're working a little bit more on the pop side, shall we say, as opposed to like the really guitar driven type. Yeah, it's tended to be that. Yeah. Right. How much of a deep dive do you go into because we have like you said every thing is available online as far as oh we use this keyboard or we use this right. and this and that how meticulous do you get as far as research on what keyboards might have been used yeah. like recreating patches that type of thing or is that oh, something yeah, that you yeah. do you tend to offload that to somebody who might have keyboard as their primary instrument or, well or yeah that, like for for instance, with when it when it comes to keyboards, when I'm and when I'm talking about keyboards, I, I think of classic keyboards. Like if you're talking about 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, Cat Gray is by far the most knowledgeable of any person I've ever met. This guy has got cassette backups for his patches. He has so many keyboards, I can't even believe it. So he knows everything cassette about it. He played backups. You know, you remember data those data cassettes? Yeah. Yes, I yeah, do remember cassettes. those as a tiny yeah. child. Yes, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, he was he was the keyboardist for Prince during the Purple Rain tour. Is, this, oh, good I'm, I'm sorry, I have to ask because Cat yeah. Cat is the same cat that used to teach at MI in Hollywood. Correct, and he's yes, oh, that is yeah. correct. Then, uh, yeah, he. I remember I had some classes with him that I studied. Oh, you there. did? Yeah. And he yeah. was, I really quickly veer off, but he deserves like all the credit in the world because I, I remember his timing was yeah. ridiculous where yes. most people would after a while feel relatively comfortable feeling 16th notes, right? You, yeah, you could feel sure. that. He had the same feel for playing 32nd notes. Yeah. And yeah. that was just like, oh my God, that that's just like different level stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, Kat, so, no, Kat is, Kat is from another planet and he actually, aside from being a great friend, he's actually, he was key in my development. He's uh, a true mentor in the sense that micro-timing and the level of detail. He was the first guy that I ever met that was as hardcore as me, but he took it to a level that I didn't understand yet. And whenever I think I figured, you know, I've seen the, the best of his abilities, you know, he'll he'll do something and it's an offhand thing or whatever. And you go, you know, I've had enough of this. I already had one Eric. <laughs> I had one Eric Valentine in my life already. So to have a second is pretty amazing. So just when you think you're doing pretty good, you know, you've got these guys to put you in check. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, Cat. When whenever I'm doing a track, I'll say, Hey, you know, what do you think this is? And and immediately he'll say, Well, you know, that's an OBX. You know, whatever. And he'll go into the details and say, I have a patch from it from my real one. And so, yeah, that has been something the internet never has. And I yeah. will tell you this, the other thing is, is that these days, they're much harder to do a, a current song than an old song for the reason that they have everything at their fingertips now. How would you ever know how someone came up with a sound? It may have been based on an Arturia version of a model of something, then run through how many different potential processes yeah. that we have. I mean, or even layered to be, together that, with another yeah, synth on yeah, top I mean, of forget it. Forget it. Yeah, I did last uh, the last Just Dance. I did Till the World Ends, mm. the Britney Spears song, and I was able to get very close to that. But I guarantee that I did not do it the way that they did it. Sure, because you know it's not like you plug in a Fender Rhodes. And you run it through a Leslie or any of the sort, you know, now it's anything goes. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it's easier in a sense to do older songs than newer songs, but the process has definitely gotten much more intense over time. Sure. Yeah. Well, here's a question in regards to that, especially when it comes to doing synths and, and maybe talking older synths. Mm -hmm. Are you a member of say Rolling Cloud? I am. Okay. I am. A, I am a member. So um, anytime Cat says, an "Hey, if it's this Roland blah blah blah," you go to Roland Cloud and just pull it up from there because they still have everything yeah. and it's now digital as a plugin. Yeah, I do. Or I just say, "Hey, you know what it is? Do you want to do it?" <laughs> and you know, and and we've collaborated for like I said for the last ten years. So sure. I mean, sometimes when I get it and I think I've got it, you're talking about this thirty second note ability that <laughs> that, that Cat has. It's not even that. It's the no. He was using an RMX sixteen on this, and it was panned slightly thirty percent this way, and then it was no. That sounds to me like a DBX one sixty, <laughs> uh, probably followed by an LA two A or you know, and you're just like. Oh, it's not an 1176. No, it's an 11, 1176, but it's a Rev E. No, it's a Rev D. <laughs> I can tell. You know, so. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, the thing that's crazy about that is all of those little details add up um, yeah, to and, making that and, sound. 
Exactly, exactly. So it's a never-ending lesson for me and something that just when I think I've gotten close, you know, there is a hundred more things that I could have done to make it closer. So I actually am I'm much harder on the details than I was. And sometimes I wonder if it makes you lose out on the straight energy of the track. And, and I will actually default to something that sounds and feels better than being technically perfect because you're always in the end trying to make music. So it yeah. has to feel good. Try tuning Robert Plant sometime. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. No, I well, think somebody that, did uh, do that on the internet. Yeah, and it didn't work. <laughs> no, it's awful. Yeah. It sounds terrible. But, but but I think that that's an interesting lesson in there because I I, th- I was immediately struck by two things where you said there that first of all you, you default to something that feels better that has the energy yeah as opposed to being technically correct. And I think that's a lesson that all sort of like engineers and things can learn from because what really is technically correct, even if you're not trying to match something, it has to have the the emotional content of the track, right? And if you lose track of that, we can get into a little bit of troubled waters, I think. And I think the second thing that I wanted to mention again or sort of reiterate is that you said that when you think you kind of have this down and you realize you're learning something else or something new. Yeah. That's kind of like part of the beautiful process, though, because we, we realize that we're, we're never done. Right? No. We, we can no. only get refined and in, in our focus shifts a little bit. So I think Absolutely. it is a wonderful world that we live in. We have all these tools, but sometimes we can perhaps get too caught up in our old technical heads and we kind of yeah. – Lose the patient, as it were, when we're mixing. So. Yeah, I think that, you know, back when we were using tape and mixing boards, you had to use your ears. There was nothing to look at. You didn't see the waveforms. You didn't, yeah. you know, you you were definitely in a different place than you are now. And we have the ability to get under the microscope. So sometimes you kind of have to walk away. I think taking breaks is probably one of the best things because you might be there and you might think everything is right and you walk away, come back a half hour later and it's like, wow, that that is not right at all. Or, you know, yeah. I need to fix this. And I was totally focusing on the wrong, the wrong part. So speaking of yeah. taking a break, let's yes. take one right now and we'll be right back. Chris, what's your next question? No, we've talked about sort of like the overarching kind of a thing of how the, the process might work. Now I want to go back to a little bit more heavier on the guitar works, if you don't yeah. mind. No. So we talked briefly the other day, and you mentioned the Oxbox from yes. UA. Can you tell us a little bit about how the recording gear or, or the gear acquisition or the use of the gear has changed over the years from UA? Because you mentioned that piece that has really kind of helped you out. That's this changed not, everything. Yeah. I'm not trying to sound like a UA commercial here because that's well, I've paid for should. all my UA stuff so <laughs> that, I can say that, we can say whatever that's I want that's Jody's that, job yeah, that's my he's a side UA guy. so I'm a UA guy <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a UA guy too but I just bought it all so I, I've, yeah. uh, I run the Apollo X8P and I got the Ox a couple of years ago here's the thing I'm in a one room studio when we yeah. recorded the Guitar Hero stuff it was at a proper studio in that they had a live room that we would record the guitars through you know put the cab in the room and it's always been really difficult to get great guitar tones for me with the amps that I like cuz I like I like real amps and Don't we um, all? yeah well I know you guys like direct too <laughs> yeah. um and uh, I've used all sorts of modeling amps in fact little known 
is that uh, for The Devil Went Down to Georgia, that all of those guitar solos was Amp Farm. Yes. Ooh. Amp Farm or Pod Farm? Amp Farm. Oh, we precursor Pod one. Farm. You, you got to go back to a, a <laughs> yeah. TDM DSP Farm style. Yeah, so we actually, because there were three different guitarists on that, it was me, Ed DiGennaro, and Jeff Tyson. When we were trading solos, I said, just send it, you know, put whatever you need, but give me a DI and I'm going to reamp everything. Well, I didn't reamp in the end. I ended up using Amp Farm because it sounded great for what we were doing. Sure. I don't usually do that for for anything that goes out in the public at this point or for a game. I still use a real amp head, but I use the aux. And I have had all sorts of attenuators. I mean, I've had the Fryat Power Station, which is amazing. I had the Rivera Rock Crusher, which is amazing. But all of them still required sound to be coming out in the room. Sure. And so when the aux came about and I could load everything down, I've never been happier because it still feels like the amp is live with a speaker. You don't get that dead blow hammer feel where the pick just doesn't bounce or anything. And it sounds like it's going to sound through my studio monitor. So I'm playing the song and I can put it at any volume I want and it still sounds like the completed image of what I want it to sound like, and you can tweak it, but it does print that sound. Although I'll always print a DI just in case I want to reamp it again. So what are you um, using to split the signal when you do that? Are you coming out of the Apollo into the aux and no. back in, or are you splitting a, no, ahead of that? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm using a Little Labs PCP distro. Okay. So that's in my rack and I can reamp with that too. And then whenever I do DI, I actually, I don't use the Apollo. I use the Undertone Audio MPDI4. That's Eric Valentine's company. Hmm. And I figured if you're going to buy something, (laughs) buy it from a guy who's going to use something like, you know, I mean, he built his own freaking console because he didn't think the Neve was good enough anymore. (laughs) You know, <laughs> okay, like, go Eric, go Eric. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, oh, that's that's, that's Eric. Yes. I, I I could use a Neve, but hmm, I have some thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's him. You know, he says I yeah. love the way that the Neve does this, and I love the way that the API and the SSL do these things, but I really want. And so he built his own thing with Larry Jasper and. And now, of course, he did you, I don't know if you've heard this, but now he just bought a, like a 125 acre farm or something in Vermont with his wife. Yeah. Yeah. He's built this giant thing that's the size of freaking Abbey Road in his backyard. Now they're doing concerts there. He's got a lot. It's just, that guy. Good for him. He's he's doing very well. And if I'm not mistaken, did he also like get some. Fairchild's modified or like rebuilt. Oh, he the- makes his own. Yes. He makes the unfair child. <laughs> That's what it is. The which is the greatest child, name yes. ever for a Fairchild copy. <laughs> so yeah, I know. And he made his, he's talking about feed forward and feedback compression and, or, you know, I just, my brain just kind of starts melting. getting kind of melty when I'm around him for too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. What, what about on the guitar front though? Uh, I mean, cause I believe I know the answer to this, but how meticulous do you go about when you've done research on players and what you <laughs> I'll use? I'll buy the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will find an excuse to buy the guitar that they used. And if I can't buy the guitar that they had, I will borrow it or I will modify one of mine to have the same pickups, string, action, the guitar cable, the tubes that they used in their amps. I'll do everything that I possibly can. In fact, I, I've gone so far as I was doing a Barry Manilow track, Copacabana. Oh, wow. And I found out that he was, the guitar player was using a 
the small stone and it was a V1 small stone. So I had to go out and get that particular pedal. And I can tell you that they, they were not made very well, but they sound <laughs> different than the new ones. And so, yes, I go all the way. My wife always gets a kick out of it because I finally have the career that allows me to, to be the kid in the bedroom that always got everything that he, he wanted. <laughs> so it's like a circus here. It's like this constant revolving door of gear coming in one door and out the other. I need an entire separate facility just to hold on to the gear because I have too much of it, but I can't let some of it go because I need it. And and I even <laughs> yeah. though I don't need it, I need it, you know. Sure. That's so, that GDS yeah. <laughs> that we've uh, talked about. Yes. Gear derangement syndrome. Yeah, it's not even acquisition, it's derangement at this point. <laughs> I mean, I just I just started looking into fuzz pedals and I'm starting to find these pedals are going for like seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars for these The Clon? You know, I mean are you going after no, a not, no, the no the Klon's fifty five hundred dollar okay. overdrive and that's a joke. I I mean it's not it's a great pedal. Bill Finnegan did a great job, but everyone else is the one that's responsible for making it into something. It's the blues lawyers, and sure. I'm not going to go any farther than that. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned <laughs> we already mentioned before. them. Oh, we could yeah, oh okay, good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. What's the old joke? They're pretty much the only one propping up the the retail industry when it comes to musical. You got that right, right? Yeah. That's why that last Les Paul cost me eight thousand dollars. Oh, good God! Yeah. Wow. And uh, (laughs) business uh, expense. Yeah. Who who does your uh, insurance on all your gear? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. All state. I'm in the good hands. (laughs) So it's not even with like your PRO. It's it's all state. (laughs) No man, it's straight up. I got a I got a marine inland insurance policy. You know, believe me, fire, water, everything, earthquake. (laughs) Yeah, I have it. Even though we don't get them much here out, you know, in Arizona. Sure. Good for you. So, uh, but one question I wanted to ask you. You've kind of already answered it. I want to ask it again anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so w- when you're recreating these tracks, yeah, getting the sound right versus the performance, which one always trumps? Yeah, uh, I don't have uh, a one or another on that. The the performance is is key, and you can manipulate a good performance to more mirror the original performance, but you cannot make a bad performance. It does. It just doesn't work. So I mean, it, it has to be reasonably close, is what you're saying. Yeah. Look, put a put a mic anywhere near Paul McCartney, and it's going to sound good. Right. But put a great mic in front of somebody who doesn't have the Paul McCartney vibe, and you're in trouble. So I mean, I, I've you know, yeah. <laughs> you're in trouble. That's a fetish film. I always thought would be a funny one to make. <laughs> you heard it. Uh, that's it. You're in trouble. You're in trouble but anyways, <laughs> anyways yeah well, that's the rated r version so um, here's a, here's a question for you then going for the meticulous aspect and using certain yeah. tools this is going to sound kind of bizarre but maybe you take a track apart using rx music rebalance and you're yes. getting your guitar part separated from your bass and your drums and your vocals and whatnot yes then you get a, a performance that's reasonably close and your music rebalance plugin has pulled out the original performance of the part that you're recording and it's relatively uh-huh. close do you go in with say vocal line or revoice pro and then have it realign everything if it's slightly off i do it by hand, you um, do it by I've hand. never used okay. yeah i've never used a program that didn't have too many artifacts sure it's great i i think vocal line is amazing however it's that cat gray thing again. Once you start doing it with by hand, 
It's that extra attention to detail versus an algorithm that you can't do yet. There, you know what? Okay, so funny you mentioned that. And I, I just brought that up to just see if those, like, along the lines of the tools that you might be using. But another mutual friend yeah. of ours, Mr. Robert Navarro. I love Robert. Yes. He, when he was learning logic and yes. wanting to do timing correction using right. flex time, oh, he yeah. was constantly trying to use the automated version of it. Right, Whereas, without, without the markers and all that. Yeah, where the markers were automatically dealt with and all that kind of right, thing. And, right, and right. And bless Apple for adding this to Logic's capabilities. However- well, It's good to get you in the ballpark. Yes, but it is not as good as somebody who has the ear and the talent to know exactly where that hit is and then to use your own flex markers in there. Yeah. And drag yeah. it through where it is exactly where it's supposed to be. So oh, it's interesting that you do it by hand because obviously that does take longer. Yeah, it does. But it's worth it in the end. Of I course. think that, you know, uh, in the end, uh, everything that you do in this business stays available forever, right? I mean, the internet, it's everything is, is forever. And so everything that I do, I absolutely try to do it to the utmost that I can within the time constraints I have sure. because it represents what you're doing. And forget about all of that for a second. You have to be respectful to the artist and, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, the original artist, the original producers. Now, again, I, in a sense, I don't really know. I've never actually spoken to an artist that I've done a re-record about, you know, with that has had anything negative to say, but then again, I don't know how they feel about it. I know that there were lawsuits from like the band, the Romantics. They they sued for their likeness mm. when a re-record was too close to them. Wow. Hmm. And, and I thought that was interesting. So that hasn't happened to me yet. I'm assuming the that your contracts and, actually cover that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously when you're working on a project of, you know, a guitar hero or a just dance level, they dot their I's and cross their T's. They're not, they're not doing anything that isn't legitimate. This is all, believe me, you don't do anything until there's a green light from the lawyers. Sure. Now, here's another question for you, because I actually don't yeah. know the answer to this, but being that you've worked on several of these guitar-type games, are you somebody that recreated Metallica stuff, like the infamous Death Magnetic album, I think it was, where the album was so crushed, but the so game version yeah. was like much nicer in terms of actually hearing the parts. I worked on Guitar Hero Metallica, but I did the underscore for the game. I did the cutscenes and the underscore. All of the original songs were, you know, the original recordings. Oh, so they like actually Ktel got the used rights. to say, Yeah, they were, well, Metallica, yeah, it's like Aerosmith. Guitar Hero Aerosmith was the same way. They used all the originals. In fact, it's Joe Perry's son's fault that my song... My version of Same Old Song and Dance did not end up on Guitar Hero 3. I say this jokingly, but I guess Joe Perry's son was um, was playing Guitar Hero, and he said, Dad, you guys should be on this. And he's like, what, <laughs> what is this? Aww. And so I was in the middle of recording Same Old Song and Dance, and Activision called, and they said, you can go ahead and stop. We oh, just, uh, oh, we, they yeah, got the we rights just, to the original tracks. Because yep, oh. they want the original, and I'm like, well, all right, that's fair enough. And, sure. You know, so I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to say that publicly that they, it's Joe Perry's son. I got it out <laughs> <for> him. <laughs> Damn him! I've got yeah. some fun stories from a guy named Steve White. Are you familiar with him? Steve White. Yeah, I know Stephen session, White. He was my guitar tech. No session guitar player from way mm. back in the day. 
Coke okay. bottle type glasses. We'll we'll talk about it off air because I don't want to okay. repeat some of the things that he's told me personally. Okay. So, but I think you'll get a kick out of it based on what I just heard. <laughs> oh, awesome! Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, let's say that a little birdie told me to ask you to mention a perhaps something with some Megadeth tracks. <laughs> <laughs> is yeah. this something that we can talk about, or is this? I, I, I can I can talk about it to a degree. Yeah, there um, there was a time when I was working on Rock Revolution, the Konami game. Let's just say. I was working on the song, and between me and a few of the guys at the studio, we were able to get a version of the song musically that sounded like you couldn't tell the difference between the original and what we had. It was very, very, very close. Although I will say that I was doing double chores. I was doing Dave Mustaine and Marty Friedman, too. Like, these guys are not easy to, you know... Yeah. Sure. Marty Friedman. You. I, yeah, yeah I, well, thank you. Well, listen to the song sometime. You'll understand why I'm <laughs> sad about this. Um, you know, I was so focused on the music, and <laughs> we were just so excited because everything sounded just great. And then we needed to get a Dave Mustaine voice. Mm. We'll leave you with this cliffhanger. Our interview with Steve Womet continues in the next episode. 